just playing off of what Micah was saying about the 20th anniversary, you definitely do not want to miss it. How often do you have 20th anniversaries? Answer? Once in a lifetime, that's it. So don't miss it. As part of our celebration, we're going to have a a time of testimony as well. So if you would like to, in just a couple of minutes, that day, that evening, give testimony to what God has done in your life uh, at being part of Foothill Bible Church, then uh, please let me know, because I'd like to talk to you and like to give you that opportunity to uh, publicly voice what God has done. Some of you have some amazing stories, and uh, the body would be greatly encouraged by you sharing those stories with us. So if, uh, if that's something you'd like to do, and if you're scared of coming up here, I understand that. I'm scared every week, and uh, uh, that's almost literally true. Uh, but the Spirit of God gives, uh, gives grace in the, in the time of need. So we're looking for people to give their testimonies. Open your Bibles up. To Matthew chapter 12, we return for the third and final message from this section of the scriptures, Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 14, and we have entitled this uh, short little series, these three messages, Dealing with Legalists, Dealing with Legalists, and we have asked uh, this question every week, and, and I want to ask it again as we start this morning, just to get everybody in the right frame of mind as we approach the text here. And if you're joining us perhaps for the first time, uh, that maybe will help you figure out where we are. So the question I want to ask you is, what is a legalist? Let's kind of begin with that. I'll lay that down. What is a legalist? And we have defined it as following. A legalist is one who seeks to obligate himself and others by the addition of non-biblical requirements for the purpose of pleasing men and gaining favor with God. That is a legalist. One of the devastating results of legalism is that it reduces the Christian faith to a lengthy list of do's and don'ts. It turns it over time into a very long checklist and in the process puts us on a performance treadmill, a performance treadmill that robs us of the rest that Christ has promised to his children. Because nobody can live life on a treadmill, people who are under the weight of legalism, the yoke of legalism, eventually tend to respond in one of two ways. Either by faking it, faking it, and that is by by pretending to keep all of the rules, all of the lengthy lists of do's and don'ts, and operating under the, the misunderstanding that they're the only one who is, is struggling and that everybody else is somehow managing to comply. And so they look around them in the church and they see, well, if everybody else is doing it, there must be something wrong with me and so I'm just going to fake it. And so their Christian life becomes, over time, increasingly marked by hypocrisy. Faking it. 
Another way people tend to approach it when the treadmill gets too much to bear is, is they walk away. They just flat walk away from Christianity. They see the hypocrisy of it in their own lives, and they're able to see the hypocrisy of it in other people's lives. And their conclusion is is that Christianity doesn't really work. It's just a lengthy list of, of do's and don'ts that nobody keeps. And so people walk away, typically from the church, and conclude Christianity is just a farce. But there is a third way. There is a third way. The third way is to reject legalism and to cultivate a life of the Spirit. The life of the Spirit. Where duty becomes delight. Where your relationship with God through Jesus Christ is not a great big set of what I do and what I don't do. But instead to to love the Lord God with your heart soul, mind, and strength in your neighbor as yourself. It is the life of the Spirit. And that's what Jesus offers. We're here in Matthew 12, 1 to 14, where Jesus confronts the legalists of his day. And in the process of working through this passage, we've said there are three stages, three stages to this Sabbath controversy and we're looking at them so that we might refuse the legalistic enslavement and learn the true meaning of sabbath rest it all began stage one in verses one and two with what we called a ridiculous discussion you remember that at that time jesus went through the grain fields on the sabbath and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat When the Pharisees saw this, they said to them, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. And we spent a lot of time talking about that, didn't we? It was a a simple thing that was was greatly uh, not just um, permitted by the law, but encouraged by the law. To to pick a few morsels of grain, to rub them between your hands, to blow away the, the chaff, and to eat them to satisfy your immediate hunger. And yet the Pharisees had, had raised this elaborate set of rules and regulations governing what was work and what was permissible. And, and they had defined it down to the nth degree to the point where even what God permitted, what God commanded, had become, in their view, something unlawful. Ridiculous discussion. And, and so often, discussions with those prone towards legalism tend to in that direction. They end up ridiculous, talking about straining out gnats and swallowing camels. Ridiculous discussion. Jesus responds to that discussion in verses 3 through 8 with what we noted last time, which is a rigorous defense. A rigorous defense. He, he was not going to allow this to go. He was going to expose the hypocritical system, the the heavy, burdensome system that the Pharisees had created and that was crushing the life out of the nation. Their relationship with their God had had become this, this series of do's and don'ts and the life had been completely squeezed out of it. 
So we began in verses 3 and 4. We noted last time is what we call the argument of necessity. Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Jesus reaches back into the Scriptures. And he notes the account in 1 Samuel 21 where David, on the run from Saul, he and, and a few of the men who were with him, are given by the priest the, the, the bread, the showbread that had been set aside to commemorate the people's relationship with their God. A, a bread that by the law of God, by the Mosaic law, was permitted to only be eaten by the priests. Yet in David's time of necessity, the priest gives them the bread to eat. They were hungry, and he satisfied their needs. And that's exactly the point that Jesus is making here. His men were hungry and, and were merely doing what the, what the law permits and commends them to do, and, and yet the Pharisees have, have turned this into this great big controversy, and Jesus is saying, listen, necessity, necessity sets aside even divine law at certain times. How much more will it set aside the regulations of men? The argument of necessity. Jesus follows with the argument of priority, verses 5 and 6. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Jesus again notes from their own scriptures how there is a a built-in exception clause right in the Mosaic law that the priests on the Sabbath day, the day set aside for rest, actually worked twice as hard in order to prepare the obligatory sacrifices that represent people's relationship with their God. Jesus observes this and he says, listen, the relationship with God in that circumstance creates a priority that exceeds even the the strict obedience of the fourth commandment. God understands these things. God builds these things in. And then Jesus comes back and says, listen, if that's true of the temple, it's even more true of me. For I am greater than the temple. He follows with his third argument in verse 7, the argument of intent. The argument of intent But if you had known what this means, and of course in all of these you you get the idea that Jesus is being quite sarcastic with them here. Those that pride themselves on their knowledge of the Word of God, he he is pointing out to them how they really don't understand the, the law of God, the Word of God at all. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, a a quote from Hosea six six, you would not have condemned the innocent. Jesus is saying here, listen, yes, there is a Sabbath law, and it it says that there is to be no regular work done on that day. But the intent behind that law is one of compassion. Compassion, because God has a heart of compassion. Our God is a gracious God. He gave the Sabbath law in order that we might understand rest. And in order that we might have time 
to spend with our God. The Sabbath law is given not as something to oppress us, something to hold us down, but it is given for rest, not enslavement. Compassion, not condemnation. For the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, Jesus says, as Mark records it over in Mark 3. The argument of intent. And then he closes his dispute with him here in verse 8. With what we looked at last time, the, the argument of authority. The argument of authority. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man, we, we noted that that is directly out of Daniel 7. That is the name of the, of the divine king from Daniel 7. It is Jesus' favorite self-designation. It's how he refers to himself most often in the Gospels. And in fact, it is most often used by him as a title of self-reference. The Son of Man. And what he's saying here is, as the Son of Man, the, the Messiah of Israel, he has authority over the law of God. He determined what the Sabbath really means and how it is to be used. He will restore its true intent. He's the boss over it, if you like. And listen, if he's the boss over the fourth commandment, he is certainly in a position of authority over the man-made commandments of all the religious systems, the Pharisees not being the least. The argument of authority. So we have a ridiculous discussion We have the rigorous defense of him and his disciples. And then we arrive at what we want to finish this out in stage three. And we're calling it a righteous demonstration. A righteous demonstration. Jesus teaches that it is God's priority of compassion over ritual, right? We saw that there in in verse 7. Compassion over ritual. The ritual of a, of a strict and inflexible Sabbath-keeping system. And so what we have, Matthew has for us here, is an illustration of that reality. Verses 9 through 14 is, is really an illustration of, of the issue of compassion being the ruling principle. A righteous demonstration. It begins in verse 9 and 10 with what I'm calling an ethical trap. It starts with a trap. We ought to be used to traps, by the way, as we read the Gospels, right? The Pharisees are always laying traps for Jesus. Always laying traps, and he never steps in any of them. In fact, he actually turns them on them. They always spring and sort of bite them in the the behind, right? Well, it's going to happen again here. But it begins with this this ethical trap. Verse 9, departing from there, he went into their synagogue. Now, Mark chapter 3, Luke chapter 6 also bring additional information to us about this particular confrontation. And so we'll refer to that a a little bit as it kind of helped fill it out a little bit. And, And Luke tells us this happens on another Sabbath. So there's a, there's a break in time between verses 8 and verse 9. It's not that it's this and then immediately that. There's some break in time. It's another Sabbath. 
But departing from there, it says he, that is Jesus, went into their synagogue. Notice their synagogue. Their synagogue. Whose synagogue? The Pharisees' synagogue. The synagogue over which the Pharisees uh, are in control. It is their home turf. It's, it's their place. And so, and so Jesus is entering in, as Matthew would have us see it here, he is entering into the lion's den. He's going onto their turf. And they're going to utilize this opportunity. They're going to press their advantage, their home court advantage, as it were. And they're going to try to discredit him with the people. And that's their typical trap. They try to put him into some sort of ethical bind, some sort of dilemma, some sort of position in which if he chooses one way, he loses. If he chooses the opposite way, he loses it. And then he does this sort of spiritual jujitsu. And when it's over with, you know, he's free and they're all twisted up. I actually love it when I read this sort of stuff. That's exactly what happens here. So he went into their synagogue. Verse 10, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Why? Were they curious? Matthew doesn't leave it to chance. So that they might accuse him. So that they might accuse him. Oh, this is going to be good. We've got him right where we want him now. We'll ask this question, and and there's no way he is going to be able to answer this question without either committing what appears to be open blasphemy, and we've got him, or else he's going to say something that is going to make him, or, or fail to do something that is going to make him very unpopular with the people. We've got him. Luke tells us in the, his parallel account, Luke 6.6, 6, that that uh, this is the man's right hand. This is right hand that is uh, paralyzed here, withered, literally dried up. The idea is that the muscles of his hand are, are shriveled and the hand is paralyzed. It cannot be used. Now, the Pharisees make provision in their voluminous laws and regulations regarding work on the Sabbath, they do make provision for, for certain works necessary to preserve a human life. So they did make allowances if there was a, a, an emergency situation, an actual threat to human life. You know, you could sort of do CPR, as it were. But the nature of this man's condition is, is quite evident. This is not a life threatening situation. This is a condition that this man has had for a long time. Hand is all withered and dried up. So for them, this is the perfect opportunity. This is, this is the ideal test case to, to bring to him. This is, the, this is the chance to catch him on the horns of the dilemma. I mean, if he heals on the Sabbath, he's going he's to clearly violate the law. But if he refuses to heal this man, well, how can he be talking about compassion and not heal? They've got him. Or do they? Notice it's the uh, Pharisees who stir up the the, uh, controversy here, right? They're the one laying the trap. But it's interesting how Jesus responds to it. 
Again, we're uh, reliant on Luke's gospel, Luke 6 and verse 8, to give us a little more help on this. Uh, Jesus, uh, when they pose this question to him, Jesus has the man come forward and stand sort of in the middle where everybody can see him. So Jesus intensifies the, the confrontation. Now, it's, it's, it's synagogue-wide. It's not going to be something that's going to happen off on the side. It's not going to be a private dispute. Everybody is going to be drawn into it now. Here is the man with the withered hand standing in front of everybody. I think Jesus does this because for a number of reasons. One is he wants everybody to get involved in this discussion because this is a life-and-death discussion It is an eternally life and death discussion. So everybody needs to enter into it. And I think beyond that is is that he wants people to understand. He wants them to see the the human side of the controversy. This is not merely something among the rabbis where they sort of dispute philosophically. This is a flesh and blood, real life situation. You're going to follow their burdensome form of of legalistic approach to God. Then there are real life consequences to it. And here's one of them. He's standing right here. He's standing right here. So Jesus heightens the controversy by by bringing the man forward. (coughs) Excuse me. So they have the the ethical dilemma. Next, we have what I'm calling the freedom to do good. The freedom to do good. And Jesus said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? Oh, you've got to love this. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, he says, right? That's exactly what he is doing here. It's exactly what he's doing. He, he, instead of falling into their trap, and instead of answering their question, which is whatever way he answers it is going to come back on him, he, he, instead he doesn't answer it, he asks them a question. So I said it's sort of like spiritual jujitsu. You know, you take their question, you, don't, you ignore it, and you ask back a question. It's a great strategy. And he turns the tables on them in the process. And, and he takes it out of a, of a hypothetical situation, uh, just a discussion of law and rules and regulations. And he, and he makes it now something that is concrete, something that is understandable, something that every single person, every, the average person, the, the children in the room could understand. And he builds his response here around two uh, really obvious and, and commonly agreed upon realities. Proper care of your animal and the value of a human being. So the proper care of your animal, right? What man is there among you who has a sheep and it falls into a pit? Will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Now, whether motivated by compassion, whether motivated by, you know, sort of economic interests or, or some combination thereof, it doesn't matter. Every single person in the room understands that, listen, if you had a sheep and it fell into a, to an empty cistern or, a, you know, some sort of pit or whatever, you're not going to leave it there. You're going to get it out. You're going to lift it out. And you're going to do whatever is necessary to do in order to lift it out. You're going to work to save the sheep. Now, even the Pharisees understand this and would agree 
to this. Even the strictest of the rabbis permitted sort of exceptions to the no work rule when it comes to rescuing an animal. Now they went through some very elaborate gymnastics in order to get to this. And uh, here's one of them for you. And I just blew my mind when I read this. But there was a certain group of rabbis that, that taught that, that if you lift it out with the intent of killing it, but then afterwards you change your mind and you preserve it, then it's lawful. You like that, huh? So as long as I intend to kill it once I get it up on the ground, but then, you know, once I get it up, I change my mind, I don't want to kill it anymore, then it's okay. Then it's okay. And that's the kind of gymnastics that legalism will drive you to. Carry your animal. Everybody in the room knows what they would do if their sheep falls into the pit. Then Jesus brings forward the second obvious, the value of a human being, right? How much more valuable, verse 12, than is a man than a sheep? Duh, right? I mean, everybody agrees to this. Humanity, human beings made in the image of God. They are, they are the pinnacle of his creative activity. They, they sit above all of creation, only part of creation made in the image of God. And as his image bears, they are obviously of more value than a sheep. The, the logic of this is indisputable. Absolutely indisputable. So then, verse 12, so then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He just gives them a really general principle here. He says that that compassionate activities are lawful to do on the Sabbath. And that the the pharisaical rules of outlawing work is is nothing but a heavy yoke. Nothing but a heavy yoke. Now think with me on this for a moment. Jesus, um, you know, you know the story. You know what he's going to do here. He could have healed the man the next day. Did you ever think about that? He could have healed the guy the next day. I mean, this is not a life-threatening disease. It's not something that requires his immediate action, yet he is going to heal him. Why? I think the answer is is because he's compassionate. If he were to refuse to heal him, that would undercut the very thing that he teaches, the very principle that he lives by, and that is that God is a God of compassion. You remember, right, he says in, in uh, the end of Matthew 11, Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I am gentle, humble at heart. You'll find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. It's a compassionate God. So he's going to heal this man. Beloved, listen, it's, it's easy to say no healing today. Right? You know, hey, it's Sunday, no healing today. Or in their case, it's the Sabbath, no healing today. Go home, come back tomorrow. We don't do these sort of things. It's easy to say that. Just like it's easy to say to, to somebody who's, who's struggling, hey, suck it up. Just suck it up. You know, have faith. Trust God. That's easy for you to say. You're not in the place where I'm at. You're not going through what I'm going through. You don't, you don't, you've got no compassion at all. You, I'm in need, and what do you hit me with? 
Romans 8, 28. Thank you. All right. Is it true? Of course it's true. Is there a place to bring it to bear? Yes, there's a place to bring it to bear. But it has to be done in compassion. And how easy it is for us when we're not the one hurting to just come at people with the law. Just hammer them with the law. Beloved, compassion doesn't stand on principle. Compassion doesn't wait for permission. Compassion acts. Compassion acts to alleviate human suffering when it sees it. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He acts. Can you imagine if you were there? I was was thinking about that this week. What would it have been like to be there, to, to be sitting in the crowd? Right? I mean, here's the scene, right? There's, there's the Pharisees. They're there. And they've been, they've been bested in open verbal combat. And, and they would agree that, it, that it's the right thing to do to help somebody. But, but they cannot admit it. Because if they were to admit it, then, then their whole system would begin to crumble. So they don't say anything. Mark tells us, Mark chapter 3, verse 4, they sat there in silence. They sat there in silence. So you've got them silent. Then you've got the guy with the withered right arm, right? He's, he's still standing there in front of everybody. He's just standing there. Now you have Jesus. And Jesus, again, Mark tells us, he's looking around the room. Mark says he looks from face to face around the room. And his eyes are are flashing with anger. Why? Because his heart is broken. He is grieved. Grieved that, that people have greater concern for their rules than they do for this poor man standing here. And so he goes face to face around the room. Can you imagine the drama of that? I mean, that, the tension at that moment, it must have been so thick you could cut it with a knife. Verse 13. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. Wow. I mean, that's shocking. That is absolutely shocking. Jesus doesn't say be healed. In fact, Jesus doesn't really say or do anything. No, no work, no visible work at all. Stretch out your hand. And it's healed. What an amazing display of power, of sovereign authority, right? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Yeah, you bet he is. Pharisees just sit there. They just sit there. They they have been humiliated. They have been crushed. Game over. Game over. He didn't break any laws. I mean, not their laws, not God's law. You know, no. He just says, stick out your hands. I mean, anybody could have said that, right? Problem is, if anybody else had said it, 
the guy'd still be there with the withered hand. So how do you suppose somebody would respond who's there? What would be the right response? I'll tell you what's the wrong response. That's verse 14. That's a, that's a hard-hearted hatred. Verse 14, a hard-hearted hatred. I mean, right before their eyes is the indisputable evidence of Jesus' power and authority as Lord of the Sabbath. He has bested them in open verbal combat. You would think they would repent. But they don't. They don't repent. In fact, they they double down. It says, look, verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might uh, destroy him. Again, Mark tells us they conspired against him, not just among themselves, but they brought uh, the Herodians into it. Now, the Herodians are a a political party in Israel that that the Pharisees would have nothing to do with. They were enemies, bitter enemies. And yet the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they they conspire together with the Herodians. They, they, They develop a plan. They're going to arrest him. They're going to execute him. Now, you've got to find this a, more than a little bit ironic, right? The, pe- the people that are so concerned with the fastidious keeping of the fourth commandment are, will go out and openly conspire to break the sixth. Huh? That's amazing. The depth to which the human heart will go. The depth to which the human heart will go. Hey, listen, when we erect fences around God, remember we talked about that last time? When we erect fences around God that, that obscure people's view of him and, and, and regulate people's access to him, when, when that's our approach, necessarily anyone who, who is seeking to come to him through anything but our gate, we see as an intruder, we see as a threat, we see as someone who must be stopped. And that's exactly what they see. They don't see in Jesus uh, one who liberates. They see in Jesus a threat to the system. And that's insipid in legalism, beloved. Those who don't come according to your rules, you find them to be a threat. You find them to be an intruder. You, you find yourself in opposition. Why, do, why is it that churches that, that are consumed in legalism are consumed in bickering with one another? Because everybody's got their own fence. And you've got to come through my gate. And if you don't come through my gate, you're an intruder. You're a fake. You're a threat. So they're back and forth. Listen, there is only one way to God. It is through the man Christ Jesus. He is the gate to God, and there are no others. And we need to know that, and we need to believe that, and we need to grab hold of the reality of that. And understand when we put up any other barriers, we are just as guilty as the Pharisees. May God deliver us from our own foolishness 
And let us rejoice in the glories of the gospel and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. May God deliver us. Let's pray. Father, again in this passage this morning, as we have for the last three weeks, we see shadows, we see glimpses of the evil that lies and lurks within our own hearts and what an ugly picture it is. We confess, our Father, that we are not as gracious as we should be. We confess that we are prone to jealously guard our own preference, our own ideas, our own opinions, our own established set of rules and convictions with regard to spirituality, most of which are beyond the Scriptures. We confess, our Father, the temptation within us to turn those things that are gray into black and white. Father, we pray you would deliver us. Help us to to relish the grace of God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Deliver us from our own foolishness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.